Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing the Bombard story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on chapter 9. Chapter 9, Casablanca to Las Palmas. The whole purpose of the expedition came under discussion again. Two men in particular, who had gone into every aspect of the project and interrogated me on every point, ended up by saying, Go ahead, you're all right. They were Furniston and a mining engineer, Pierre Elisog. We were surrounded by new friends, all listening, uneasy and anxious, but expressing no opinion and making no attempt to influence my decision. But three men were against the whole thing and tried to discourage me by pontificating about the dangers ahead. The club president, the lifeboat coxswain, and the owner of the launch, which was supposed to tow me out to sea again. I was alone in the lounge of the club when I heard two journalists talking. Well, we might as well leave, he's not going to start, one of them said. What do you mean? I interrupted. I'm only waiting for this fog to disperse to start my tow. You are not going to get a tow, they replied. The president had posted a notice that the owner of any launch which towed me out would have to surrender her club burgee, which was equivalent to expulsion. I went along to see the president and told him, I do not want to cause trouble, but I am going to find a tow. If I drown, you will be able to say that you opposed my departure. Putting down the charts and instruments I was carrying, I stumped off in a rage to find someone who would take me out to sea. Jean-Michel Crowbar, owner of Maeva, one of the two yachts in the basin, agreed to do so. Would someone go and get my charts, I asked, turning to the crowd of journalists and others who surrounded me. Off they went, and the charts were brought back by Giselle Valeray, the swimming champion. This incident the newspapers embroidered with the comment, You can see the fellow is a montebank. He even forgets his charts. We hauled out slowly from the port with an escort of launches. I waved to my friends, and we slowly lost sight of each other in the mist. I find these entries in the detailed log I started to keep of my lonely voyage. Sunday, 24th. Cast off tow off El Hank. Flat calm, mist, cramp in the stomach, but not hungry in spite of all the tunny fish frolicking around me. Mist thickens and wind drops as night falls, illuminated by precise and impassive winking of L. Hank Lighthouse. Monday, 25th, morning. Same place, wind freshens from right direction, north-north-east, but what a mist. Impossible to tell distance from coast. 1400 hours. Coast in sight due south. What can it be? 1800 hours. Think it must be Azimor. Looks almost too good to be true. Fish to keep myself occupied. Should see Sidibu Afia light in 15 miles. Ought to be to the southwest. 2100 hours. There it is. Right where it should be. Fair enough. Tuesday 26th morning. Mazangan abeam. Weather very clear should be able to round Cape Blanc from the north. If I don't drift, I ought to keep steady course of 240 for seven days, provided I have the courage. Sextant becoming an old friend. Mark the chart. Ought to see Cap Canton light this evening. That will be the last view of land, until the Canaries. Evening. Coast seems to be moving towards me, although my course is parallel to it. As night falls, still no sign of Cap Canton light. Light has a range of 30 miles, so must still be somewhere ahead. Magnificent fishing at dusk. Bonito and Ray's Bream. 0100 hours. 
Canton lights to south-southwest. Hurrah! Wednesday 27th. Coast, very clear. Wonderful visibility. Recognize it all from the coastal elevations in my pilot book. Cape Safi in sight. Have logged 60 miles a day except Sunday. Any amount of splendid fish. Now starting to lose land from view. Must hold course west-southwest for six days. No weakening. First danger will be that pointed out by Furniston. Risk of passing between Cape Juby and Fuerteventura. Decide to keep as far west as possible. Coast towards Mogador. Still clearly visible. Fortunately, the pilot book describes it as visible far out to sea, which is reassuring. Use of the sextant becoming more complicated. Having doubts about this longitude business. Seems to be drifting to the west, but wind falls again at night. Not exactly helpful to navigation by dead reckoning. I find it impossible to reread without a slight retrospective shiver this phrase in my log. Thursday, 28th. Last brief view of Mogador, then nothing but a blur. Wind very light, seemed to be drifting to the west, full of hope. Three o'clock. Wind freshens from north-northwest. Must watch the drift as I do not want to get too far south. Horribly alone. Nothing in sight. Complete novice as a navigator. Do not know where I am, but only suppose I do. If I miss the Canaries, then I am in the South Atlantic. Tragic route of the raft, Le Meduse. Wonderful wind, if only it holds. Friday, 29th. Wind has kept steady. Have even had to take a reef in the sail. Nine o'clock. Big cargo boat passes, exactly on inverse course, must come from the Canaries, so I feel I am heading the right way. If only I did not have this problem of how to land. Saturday 30th. Lord, what a night. Feel pulped and did not sleep a wink. School blew up from about 1600 hours yesterday. Had to put out sea anchor. It seems impossible, one, that a vessel as frail as this can weather the battering of the sea, and two, that my heart can hold out. Morale, low. Really think I shall have to call it all off in the Canaries, if only I can get some sleep tonight. Still nagged by this terrible fear of passing between two islands without seeing them, either to left or right. Sunday, 31st. Drifted further to the south during the night than I expected. Stopped a Portuguese boat at 1500 hours, who confirmed my position. Tried to offer me food and water. I refused. From this point of view, all is well. I'm catching magnificent mackerel every day and I'm really getting used to raw fish. Atlantic water tastes absolutely delicious compared with that of the Mediterranean. Much less salty and quenches my thirst perfectly. The question is whether things still seem as rosy if this situation lasts several weeks. Course seems good. I'm 70 miles north-northeast of Alegranza. If I can keep on the Quivive for 36 hours, I shall be in the middle of the archipelago, provided, God help me, I don't sail straight out again. A flock of enchanting little black and white birds comes to keep me company every evening at exactly four o'clock. Monday the 1st. Have passed one of the worst nights of the whole voyage since Monaco. Sea appalling, but I have received due compensation. Yesterday evening, when I turned in, commending myself to the Almighty, I lash the helm and then drop off to sleep. I said to myself, if my navigation has been correct, I ought to see the first island tomorrow morning on my left. And this morning when I woke, I saw 20 miles off to the south on my left hand, 
the two islands with the charming names of Alegranza and Graciosa. What a splendid omen. Now it is up to me not to make a mess of the landing. Full of confidence. I have won the first round and I shall win the second. Tuesday the 2nd. Appalled to see what a distance separates the islands in the terrifying void which will swallow me up if I miss the coast. It is quite impossible for me to retrace my steps, something I shall have to bear in mind once I have left the Canaries, or if I miss them, there will be no possibility of return. The minimum distance to cover will be 3,750 miles. Convinced I can make it, but there is still the problem of the acute anxiety I would cause my wife and friends not to mention the triumph which would be enjoyed by those who predicted I would never reach Las Palmas. If I want to triumph, I must provide the proofs. I said I would arrive at the Grand Canary. I will land there and not drift away. It would have been a relatively simple matter to land on the first islands I sighted, but I must prove I can go where I wish. That is essential for the castaway who, like me, must be able to reach the point he has selected. Afternoon. My inflatable dinghy, generally considered unsteerable, astonishes me more every day. Every morning about 11 o'clock, I have to deflate it slightly so that the air expanded by the sun does not burst it like a balloon. I blow it up again every evening. Ship practically no water and sleep peacefully. The first few nights were difficult. I woke up with a start every few moments with the sensation that some catastrophe was about to strike, but I have gained confidence. If it does not capsize during the day, why should it do so at night? Cannot possibly sit day and night with my hand on the tiller. Have realised that with the wind from the aft, the dinghy will sail straight before it, with or without fixing the rudder, and have learned to trust the steadiness of the wind. Can sleep perfectly soundly away from the land, but what is going to happen when I have to steer for shore? Impossible to sail into the wind. The most I can do is to keep it on the beam. Wednesday the 3rd. God help me, what is going on? Spent the whole night on the lookout for the last Palmas light. Must be there, but cannot see a thing. What on earth am I to do? Ought I to stop and wait for the fog to lift? Or ought I to keep on to the south? Noon. The first clue. An aircraft passes to the right. It was still climbing after the takeoff. The land must be there. I shall make it after all. Three o'clock. It is no good. Cannot possibly make the coast. I thought the plane had taken off from the northernmost part of the island, and now that the coast emerges through the haze, I see that I have drifted past 25 miles of coast and only have about six left on which to make a landing. Wind from the north and drifting to the south with a strong current, I shall pass about three miles from land, but I can never reach it. Six o'clock. Perhaps after all I have a chance. A countercurrent is starting to compensate my drift. The southern point of the island, looking out on the immensity of the South Atlantic, is still to my left. Maybe. I still had some reason to hope when I wrote these words. At about eight o'clock, I was not more than a hundred yards from the beach, but I was so terrified by then that I thought seriously of abandoning the boat and swimming ashore. The chief problem was not to be torn to pieces on the rocks. Some fishermen had caught sight of me and a gathering crowd pointed out a spot where I could beach on sand between two reefs of sharp rocks. I finally made it. It was the first time that a rubber boat had proved it could be steered for nine hours in an unfavourable wind. I had been so paralysed with fright 
that it was several hours before I could walk properly, but at least I had landed on the island I had named as my destination. I had proved not only that I knew how to navigate, but that I could make very good time. I had taken exactly 11 days, 24th of August to 3rd of September, to get from Casablanca to the Canaries. Gebolt had taken 14 days for the same crossing, Le Tomelon, 12, and Anne Davison, 29. The navigational problems I had surmounted were these. For the first time in my life, I had steered by instruments on the high seas. However, as I had no particular confidence in my sextant readings, I had maintained a parallel set of dead reckoning figures. I made a note each day of the number of miles I estimated I had covered in the direction indicated by the compass. That gave me a theoretical position which took no account of the possibility of drift. I then allowed myself a margin of safety based on my probable rate of drift taken from the force and direction of the current given in the pilot book. It was a factor which could not be ignored even though there was no physical evidence of its presence. This treacherous force, which was as real as it was intangible, was gradually carrying me to the south and could have resulted in my passing between the islands and the African coast. Every day, therefore, brought me three possible positions, one that I had calculated, one that I had estimated, and, most pessimistic of all, the possible true position if all the unfavourable elements had played their part to the maximum. Bearing this last point in mind, I had concentrated on avoiding the Atlantic more always open before me. But, it may be asked, since you had set off to cross the Atlantic, what would it have mattered if you had missed the islands and carried on with the most important part of the voyage? A valid question, but there were three good reasons for stopping. First of all, the anxiety of my friends and family who assumed that this lap would only take a fortnight. Secondly, the consideration of morale. If I had missed my first target, I would have taken it as a very bad omen. Finally, the thought that if there had been no news of me for a fortnight, the authorities would probably start a search for me. They might or might not have found me, but if they did, it would have been the end of the experiment. If they did not, few would have believed in my good faith when I arrived in the West Indies 70 or 80 days after my departure from Casablanca. 11 days sailing had brought me again on terra firma. The little village of Castillo del Romoral, about 10 miles south of Las Palmas, gave me a princely reception when the dinghy was sighted, the inhabitants came flocking to the beach, convinced that I was a real castaway. I was therefore greeted by a sort of general assembly from the village and surrounding farms, simple, welcoming people, colourfully dressed, all waiting for me on the beach. The coasts of the Grand Canary are extremely rocky, and although I had succeeded in landing on a small section where sand predominated, there were plenty of sharp outcrops menacing the inflatable dinghy. It only had to move a few feet to the left or right to be punctured. The bystanders soon solved that problem. With its little tricolour flag flying proudly, the heretic, still fully loaded, was lifted onto the shoulders of twenty strong men and carried further inshore. Two more of them helped me to stagger with it. Manuel, the local chief, came up and asked the expected question, Where had I come from? I gave him the usual answer in my best Spanish. De Franquia, de Niza, Despuea Balearas, Tangier, Casablanca, y once dias de Casablanca Agui. It was clear that this passed his comprehension. He looked round to see if anyone else had heard my incredible statement. Ores habent 
et non audience, to quote Jules Verne. They had ears, but they did not hear. I could see that their native politeness to a guest was tinged with a certain scepticism. It took several days to convince them that what I had said was true. Manuel took me to his home, where I was immediately served with a fried egg, and we were joined by the local medical attendant come schoolmaster. In spite of my overwhelming fatigue and sleepiness, I had to spend the whole evening telling my story in a dog roll of Iberized French, which my companions somehow managed to understand. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.